Hello and welcome to the Stuck Brain Podcast. All things mental health with a different approach. We look at the research, but we also discuss real life experience. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Stuck Brain Podcast. I am your host, Eric Osterlin. And in this episode, I have a co-host named Pinky. She is a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. If you want to know more about her, you can go to the stuckbrainpodcast.com. Before we get started, I want to introduce our guest. We have a special guest today, Dave Dubois. He is a meditation teacher, psychedelic guide, and an integration coach. To find out more about Dave, please visit his website at Radical balance.net. Now, before I release this episode, I wanted to give our listeners an update. After Dave Pinky and I recorded this episode about meditation, Dave and I decided to record my own meditation journey. Dave will be providing me with some coaching techniques around my meditation practice. And as a result, we recorded eight total meetings. We met about once a week to go over the pitfalls and the hard things that most of us have when we try to meditate. Now, the reason why we wanted to record these for everybody is to show that you're not alone. There's a lot of individuals out there, they try meditation and they give up way too early. So I hope these extra episodes will help their meditations one through eight. We did them about a week apart. That way you see my progress as someone that's trying to work to grow his meditation practice. So stick around. They're called Meditation 1 through 8. It's a series. Thank you so much. On to the next episode. Hello, loyal listeners, and thank you so much for joining us today. We have a very special episode for you today where we will be discussing meditation and to add on to that topic, we have welcomed a guest speaker, Mr. Dave Dubois. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Pinky. Thank you, Eric. Really delighted to be here with two of my favorite mental health colleagues. Oh, well, thank you for that. We're really happy to have you here. Dave, would you like to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'll, I'll just say a few things about my relationship to, to meditation and kind of how that brings me here. I had the very good fortune of first learning meditation in, in public high school as a 14-year-old. So at that time, I had really, really been struggling with a lot of depression that, that all the efforts of my parents and good therapy didn't really seem to be helping. And the minute I received meditation instruction, on some level, I knew this this must be my way in to to understanding this this part of my mind that you know felt like it was a kind of an an unstoppable and non-understood part of me so i really threw myself into it and uh, started studying zen and eventually started studying tibetan buddhist meditation because it's so detailed and and really really has a beautifully described map for how to learn meditation. I ended up going to graduate schools for Buddhist studies, studying cognitive science and Tibetan language and Sanskrit in order to study some of the old meditation manuals that really have these amazing instructions in them. 
And since then, I've uh, taught meditation in secular and spiritual contexts at corporations and meditation retreats. And it continues today as, as a love of mine. And I, I continue to teach and, and help people learn meditation. And I think why we're talking about this and how this all applies is that the world is facing kind of a global mental health crisis right now where right. things like loneliness and depression and anxiety and distractibility are on the rise, really detracting from overall human well-being. I think the World Health Organization includes mental health and community even in their, their definition of health. And so when we look at some of the things that contribute to this, many of them are related to psychological processes like attention and attention deficit. You know, the United States of America consumes five times more attentional medication than the rest of the world combined. And that was true 10 years ago before TikTok even came around. So it, it's only worsened since then. So meditation, it turns out, has a lot that it can teach us and train us in for getting to know the mind and training the mind. I think that at the most fundamental level, we could define meditation as training the mind. If you think about how yoga uses the body itself to strengthen the body, I think you could talk about meditation similarly as using the mind to examine itself, to understand itself, and, and to examine our relationship to the, to the world around us. Kind of like creating a sense of curiosity around your mind. Yeah, a sense of curiosity and, and a, a way in to knowing it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your own personal experience about meditation with us. I think it's amazing that you experienced or were exposed to meditation at such an early age and that it affected you so much that it, it kind of um, guided the rest of your career passions. That's amazing. When you were 14... Did you decide to do the meditation or was it more pushed on you from parents or outside or how did I, I'm curious about that part? Yeah, me too. How did that come about? Yeah, I was so fortunate that we were studying India at the time and I had a teacher who actually happened to be uh, of the Baha'i religion. And one of the things that he said while we were studying India was that there was a this kind of golden age uh, around you know 600 BC where the number of humans in India who were working on the science and the understanding of the mind through meditation really was one of the biggest contributors to human culture in history and he thought it's crazy to talk about this and not just give you some meditation instructions so he just gave our class one day very simple, straightforward, you know, attention on the breathing meditation practice. And that experiential quality to it, it just drew me in. And were you, was it right away or did it take a couple times for you to try it and then be like, this is, this is what I want to do. This is what I love. I started doing it at home right away and I encountered the same things that, that everybody encounters when they begin it, which maybe we'll talk about a little later, which is that it's not actually all that fun when you begin it. It's like beginning any kind of exercise where it's kind of painful and, and non-coordinated at the beginning. Um, but I, 
I pushed through that, through all the misconceptions of thinking I'm doing it wrong and I, I don't understand how this works and all that. And I, I just kept finding that it was having these small but noticeable impacts on my life. And then when I really started to study it and get some good instruction, that kind of took off. I'm so glad you, you said that because I see so many clients that in the very beginning, it's actually really difficult. And I have to explain to them, it's like exercising. It stacks. You're not going to do it once and be like, I'm perfect. This is great. It takes all those times. And I, I think we should talk about that misconception that you do it once and you're this floating Zen Buddhist guy. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, I've heard that from many of my clients too. It's difficult when you're new and starting off into the practice of meditation because I think a lot of people have these expectations that they're going to immediately be put into this Zen state, like you said, Eric, and and experience this you know, inner peacefulness and peacefulness in life. But it's more like what you said earlier, Dave, kind of like yoga or exercise or any other process of the body. If you're building muscles, you have to do it on a regular basis to be able to experience the long-term benefits of that practice. And meditation is just like that. Yeah. And I think one of the important things to note, the idea of exercise has been around in the West and accepted a little bit longer than, than meditation has. And just as it would sound, I think the word meditation is a word much like exercise. And just as exercise can help with a lot of different things, so can meditation, but they're not all going to lead to the same outcome. Different types of meditation, and there are so many from, from different traditions, lead to different outcomes. Some affect attention, some affect empathy, some affect your ability to tell a different story about yourself that impacts your relationship with the world. So we could talk a little bit about some of the different types of meditation and, and the various things that they help out with as well. I think that would be very helpful. I'd also like to touch on what you just mentioned about the Western world. I think meditation has been around for thousands of years, especially in the Eastern world. And it's, I would say, a fairly new concept in the Western world. What do you have to say about that? It's worth mentioning meditation, which a lot of people think of as close to Buddhism and things like that, it predates Buddhism by about almost a thousand years. The Vedic Hindu tradition really began developing meditation, which then kind of came into a much greater practice and study around the time of the Buddha and his contemporary Mahavira, the, the founder of Jainism. And it really has been studied and refined over time and you could think of those traditions as, as being very deep ways of, of accessing meditation. And then over time, there have been more widening avenues for accessing meditation, especially through the West. There are practices like transcendental meditation, for example, that, that slightly remove meditation from some of its original spiritual context, still preserving certain parts of it. Even further, there are things like mindfulness-based stress reduction that even further make it more widely accessible in somewhat intentionally at the cost of certain depth, but to, to accomplish certain things. And I think another area of access that we could describe would be the the apps and the software that has come about in recent years another way of making it even more widely accessible and 
I think in the future, the, the more and more the secular world comes to understand how meditation affects the mind, there will be more ever increasingly widely available and probably not as deep ways of, of engaging meditation. Like there are mindfulness curricula for kindergartners now and, and things like that. That's all really appropriately accessible for somebody of that age and rooted in scientific research that we can all agree on. Absolutely. My daughter is six years old. She's in kindergarten and they actually practice meditation, yoga, mindfulness on a daily basis at school. And I, I feel like it's really benefiting her and help her bloom in many different ways. There's a super interesting study I'll just mention about that where they took a group of kindergartners who were doing this mindfulness-based curriculum and compared them against a control group who, who wasn't doing that. And these were kindergartners who had made it through the full program, which starts with really simple things like paying attention to like breathing and a, a stone moving up and down on your belly as you lay down and looking at things in the room like flowers, all the way up to starting to work with loving kindness meditation. And the experiment they did was to give the children stickers that they were allowed to give as gifts to other students in the class. And they could choose to give them to the most popular student, the least popular student, a friend of theirs, and uh, maybe some other group. But what they noticed is that the kindergartners who had done the mindfulness curriculum and had been practicing loving kindness meditation were more likely to give it to the least popular students in the class. And just a very interesting behavioral outcome that can be seen you know, that early and with just uh, a few weeks of practice. Wow. So the, the thought is that it made them more compassionate to kind of see the less fortunate. Is that the idea behind the research? One of the, yeah, that's right. One of the things that they do in that curriculum is when upsetting things happen throughout the course of the day in kindergarten, as they always do, the children are encouraged to notice what's happening in their body as a, one of the other children is upset and to think about what might be happening in the other child's body. And so they're already doing this empathic perspective-taking work and, and they believe that this could be at the root of the behavioral differences that they're seeing. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, a lot of the clients that I see, they lose that mind-body connection. And then when they have anxiety, they're so afraid of it instead of having a sense of curiosity about it and a sense of, I've felt this before. So if you teach somebody at a young age of kindergarten to start dialing in that a body response and feeling it, I think that would have downstream effect. Yeah. One of the other ways that I like to define meditation is it's becoming familiar with something. It's becoming familiar with your mind and becoming familiar with whatever you're putting your attention on. And so if you start training and being familiar with these empathic feelings in your body, they're, they're going to become more part of your lasting experience. One of the reasons I think meditation works is because of how it interacts with, with neuroplasticity, the shaping of the brain based on repeated experience. It gives you an avenue by which you can see what's going on and start to in the mind and start to bring some volition to what are the experiences that you're having? What is the direction you are directing your attention and awareness? 
And then not to be so afraid of those internal feelings. Because I get a lot of clients that are afraid of the anxiety and then they get they get a secondary emotion. They're having anxiety about their anxiety. Yes, exactly. And if you can pull that secondary emotion away and just experience that primary emotion, then you never get that secondary emotion. That secondary emotion is the one that's going to stop you from going outside. If I go outside, I could have a panic attack. I'm not going to go outside. And then you start having that secondary emotion and teaching kids at a young age to experience and not be afraid of those internal feelings, I think would be powerful downstream. I think you really described that well. I think that's very much how I've seen it function with so many clients and students and, and my own experience that at a certain level, there is a, a fear and an overwhelm about a certain way that you're starting to feel in your body. And if you're not in touch with your body, you only really start to notice that, as you said, downstream when you're having these secondary emotions and the the reactions based on what it must mean that you're feeling this way or, you know, what it meant a very long time ago that you felt that way. It's beautiful that they're implementing, they're starting to implement these types of practices at such a young age to help engage and be in touch with your own emotions rather than waiting years and years before you start these type of practices. And now you're trying to play catch up and deal with a bunch of those secondary emotions that are there waiting for you to be dealt with. If we could circle back to one topic that you said earlier is when you first start meditation and you have all that craziness and it's really hard to get through, I want to give our listeners some tips on how to deal with that part. Because that's the part that I see most of my clients, they're just like, this isn't for me. It's like the first day at the gym, they're lifting weights, they're super sore, and they're like, I'm never going back again. If we can give our listeners some tips on how to get through that, I think that would be awesome. Can you talk to that a little bit, Dave? I'd love to. There's, I kind of have a short list of things I wish someone had told me when I started practicing meditation. And this is right at the top of that list. One of the reasons I connected with the Tibetan meditation tradition is in their beautifully described map of how you progress through learning meditation, the very first milestone or experience they call the waterfall. And the waterfall is the deluge of thoughts that you experience the moment you sit down and try to start meditating. A lot of people think that they've never had such a busy mind until they started meditation. And it's not that it's actually coming from the practice, but it's coming from the noticing and the paying attention. So to begin with, just knowing that the uncomfortable impossibility of staying with whatever you're trying to pay attention to at the beginning is actually the first correct experience that you're having with meditation. You're seeing that your mind doesn't have a lot of stability at the moment without a certain type of training. And the tip or trick that I think I adopted to work through this period there were a couple of them. The first one, well, actually the first one was breath counting, honestly. I found breath counting to be a, re in this, this could go along with many different, this could be an augmentation to many different types of meditation you might be starting with and trying to practice that might not focus exclusively on the breath. But the thing that's great about breath counting is that if you have a lot of thoughts already going through your mind, it's kind of a way of 
stealing a little bit from that stream that's already going and turning some of those thoughts into numbers that you're paying attention to, which kind of gives you almost like a stepping stone towards maybe experiencing those thoughts with a little bit more space between them. But the other thing I would just say is really a shift in mind frame that that helped me through the early uncomfortability with meditation was to realize that every time you get distracted and then come back to whatever you're trying to focus on or pay attention to, that whole maneuver is the practice of meditation. You're doing it right each time you get distracted and come back. It's not that the distraction equals you're doing it wrong. If you think about in the gym, if you're lifting weights, each time you lift a weight, that's a rep, right? Each time in meditation that you lose focus and come back and do it with gentleness and kindness towards yourself, that's the whole maneuver that you're practicing and you're doing it right. So if you get to practice that a hundred times during a session that you're doing, that's great. That's even better than just having it happen one time. I love that perspective. Yeah, I'm so glad you explained that because when I recommend meditation, a lot of my clients will come back and say, I can't do it. I have monkey mind. I get distracted. I keep thinking about other things. But that that is exactly the exercise of noting that your mind has distracted and gently bringing it back to that meditation practice. And that is the exact exercise that we're trying to accomplish. So in essence, if you did it 100 times, you did 100 reps in the gym versus if you only did it five times, you only did five reps kind of idea. That That's exactly right. You know, if you recognize that you're getting distracted twice a minute, that's a really different engagement with the practice than forgetting that you were meditating, being carried off for five minutes and remembering to come back. You, you just had one rep there as opposed to, to many. Yeah, that's such great advice. I love that. Can you go into a little bit about, you said counting your breath. Now, do you count to a certain number or do you just count infinitively? What does that look like? There are a lot of different ways to do that. There's even a Zen practice of doing that where you just count to one every time. But one of the ways to do it is to count one on the in-breath and one on the out-breath, and then two on the in-breath and two on the out-breath, and to see if you can make it up to 10, and, and to just do that as a little bit of a, a challenge. And it's, it gives you a certain calibration on where your mind and where your attentional stability is. I very frequently will start a morning of meditation with just five minutes of breath counting just to calibrate. How, how distractible am I this morning? Where is my mind this morning? It's almost like stretching before I meditate for me. I'm just getting a little bit of a sense of how settled or unsettled my mind happens to be at that moment. So you could, you could count up to 10. If you, if you get really good at that, you could see if you could start counting up to 20. But the one thing that I would advise too is you can develop a, a, a habit or a crutch on counting eventually where you, you start to you start to embrace the simplicity and the training wheels effect of that technique, which could then keep you from going beyond that. And I think that's true all along the path of meditation, that it's really about relating to whatever's coming up in your mind in the present moment. And the more you try to make something happen or try to force an experience that you once had into being, the more you're just kind of holding on to a concept and not necessarily relating to what's happening anymore. Interesting. So do you recommend 
kind of mixing it up a little bit, like doing the counting. And then once you get that dialed in, trying transcendental or trying a different whole type. I'll tell you that one of the things I recommend the most for people who are getting started and really want to make it a part of their life is to find a good human meditation coach or instructor or teacher that you can work with. There are so many wonderful apps out there and they're great for getting started. They're really great for that. But the thing that they haven't really evolved to do a very good job of yet is coach you with the various obstacles that you are guaranteed to encounter as you, the further you get into meditation. And I remember being in college at a place where I didn't really have much access to a meditation teacher or a meditation instructor. And I would go weeks sometimes struggling with some issue like sleepiness, for example. It's at one point when I was in college, I suddenly, it didn't matter how well rested I was, I would get immediately sleepy and start to fall asleep every time I would sit down to practice meditation. I struggled with that for a very long time. And then when I got back into the presence of, of a good meditation teacher, we had a discussion and that whole obstacle was dealt with kind of in a matter of days. And so I think similarly, you can spend a lot of time spinning your wheels and trying to figure out why a particular thing is happening in your meditation that might be a very routine, predictable, perfect obstacle on the path to learn and work with, but you might not discover that without the guidance of a, uh, another person. I think that's great advice because I see a lot of times, and even with me, the first couple of times I did meditation, so much came up. It was kind of overwhelming. And I, I knew the research, so I knew I had to stick with it. And then if you just had an app, they don't really address that part of it. So having a coach, having a actual human that you can interact with and say, man, this was overwhelming. It brought up all these feelings from this time. To be able to work through that, I think would be super important. Do you, what do you recommend when I'm feeling overwhelmed? Like I, I have a new client, they're starting meditation. It's bringing up either some traumas or some thoughts that they just want to have been avoiding the most of their life. What would you recommend to kind of push through that? Or, or do you just stop mm. right away? Or do you just continue? What would you suggest? One thing that I think is really helpful, this would be the same with exercise to not try to do too much, too long all at once at the beginning. I think a lot of people try to throw themselves into a practice like suddenly doing it for 15 minutes a day right off the bat, which, you know, would be like trying to start running, you know, seven miles a day without having uh, built a foundation in, in running before. So one of the, the things that can most help with that is sh shorter sessions repeated more frequently. I think that if you were to practice meditation for two to five minutes, three times a day, that would be far better than sitting down and burning yourself out in a 15 minute session where you're either under the deluge of your racing thoughts or starting to have anxiety coming up because you're not used to paying attention to what's happening in your body, all of which are very possible. That is such great advice because I did exactly the opposite of that. And that's probably why I started off with 20 minutes twice a day and yeah. it was overwhelming wow. and it almost became like, kind of like you said, like a burden. I wasn't necessarily looking for it because I'm like, oh, a lot of things come up, a lot of uncomfortable feelings. I mean, like I said earlier, I knew the research to stick with it and push through that and not keep avoiding those feelings. But I can see how some people would be overwhelming and they would 
drop out basically and say, no, I'm good. I tried to run that marathon and I sprained an yeah. ankle. I'm out. Yeah. The research, the scientific research world seems pretty obsessed with figuring out what's the smallest amount of meditation that you could do that would have an impact on you. They're always trying to figure out what's that like minimum effective dosage of meditation. But without going through the steps of doing it in a way that is attuned for your level of skill and ability, you're not going to go through the normal progression of working with these predictable obstacles of like forgetting the instructions and mind wandering and excitation and dullness and subtle distraction and subtle dullness, all of which you kind of have to get through before you even can really have a, a good chance at starting to work with some of the deeper emotional blockages and issues that meditation can illuminate and reveal. So if you, if you, yeah, if you kind of go in too deep too quickly, you're just not going to set yourself up to have those small victories along the way to build up the capacity to, to do those deeper, more helpful things that meditation can offer. So it sounds like with any new program that you might be starting or adopting, it's good to take those baby steps to ensure long-term success in the practice. Yeah. I think that's the thing that apps can be really great for is, is helping with those baby steps. And then at a certain point, I think if you want to go further with it, it's, it's recommended to probably step beyond the apps at some point as well. Let's talk a little bit about the benefits of meditation. So I, I was doing a little bit of research and I came across a study by Dr. Sarah Lazar at Harvard University. The study is back from 2005, and then she did a TED Talk in 2011 where she talks about her study, and she says something actually changes inside of our brain after just eight weeks of moderate meditation. And what happens is the area of the brain associated with learning and memory actually increased in size, and the parts of the brain associated with stress and anxiety shrunk or got smaller in size, again, just after eight weeks. And of course, we see these effects with our attention, with empathy, with our productivity. Can you speak to this? Tell us some of the benefits that can be seen mentally, emotionally, physically with the regular practice of meditation? It's worth mentioning that a lot of the benefits that meditation offers actually go far beyond just what we're starting to look for in the scientific research or around mental health and well-being. But right. there have been a lot of studies and studies that are getting better designed over time to, to really try to understand what is the impact on the body and brain that meditation has. And the things that they have found with really good research are that meditation very much affects our ability to work with our attention, that distraction is the norm for people. There was another very famous 2005 Harvard study that showed that more than half of the time, humans' minds are wandering, and that yeah. when human minds wander, the activity that's taking place there is taking place in this default mode network, which is partially responsible for the type of rumination and planning and worrying that early humans needed to do at certain critical points in their hunting and gathering 
that are not as relevant or needed anymore, and that the fact that our minds wander in this uncontrolled way actually shows up as discontent and, and poor mental health. And so the fact that so many different forms of meditation can train the psychological process of attentional stability has a direct and measurable impact on just our level of contentment and satisfaction. So that's just one. Yeah, I actually remember doing some reading on meditation and mindfulness when I first started looking into all this. And I found out that as humans, we spend 80% of our time ruminating either about the past or planning our future. So I'm sitting here thinking, so we're really only spending 20% of our brain and our time in the present. And I, I was really blown away by that. I think that's such an important insight. And it interleaves with a, another insight, which is that when you consider what is happening in the present moment, what's coming in through all five of our senses, the human brain, the consciousness within our brain and nervous system is only capable of being attentive to a very, very small fraction of what's actually coming in in the present moment. So even then, even if you're paying attention to the present moment, there's almost a choose-your-own-adventure quality to the reality that you're inhabiting because what you choose to attend to out of everything that's coming in, that is going to be what your experience has been at the end of the day. And so the ability to choose what you pay attention to as opposed to what TikTok or YouTube or Facebook are trying to get you to pay attention to are really have a huge determining impact on the quality of your life and experience. I could see that. Yeah, absolutely. If we got all the information from every sense all the time, we would be overwhelmed. We would be like, I got to shut down, brain overload and shut down. Yeah. And in fact, there's people that go to the quietest room ever. It's a sound dampening room and people can only handle like 30 minutes of it because they start to hear their own heartbeat. They start to feel like all these sensations that they've never felt before. And they're like, I, I, got, I have to get out of this room because it's going to drive me crazy. So I love that, that we have the ability to kind of change what we focus on to a certain degree, what's coming in and what's not with practice and learning to kind of hone it basically and strengthen it. And it begins with, with seeing and recognizing that we don't have that capacity to begin with, that, that our mind is just carried off on a routine basis and that that's not going to change without some training in the opposite direction of stability and attention. Yeah, but the good news is that we do have this training exercise in place that's backed by thousands of years of practice, a couple hundred years of research, scientific data, and meditation can bring about a lot of positive changes in one's life. It can bring a greater sense of enjoyment. It can help us connect with the people that we care about. It can reduce stress, frustration, depression, anxiety, along with many, many other health benefits, as you mentioned earlier. Dave, can I ask you another question? Because you said earlier, there's different types of meditation for different types of things that you're working on. Can you explain more of that? And like, what type would you recommend for what type of issue that you're trying to work on? One of the 
ways that can be useful to talk about the many different meditation practices out there. It, it's a little bit, it comes from the, the academic world in, in terms of ways of grouping or talking about meditation, but I think it's helpful for the, the purpose of what we're talking about right now. One family or class of meditation are known as attentional practices. These are practices that involve working specifically with attention and distractibility and awareness. And that can be on focusing on parts of your, your own embodied experience like breathing or paying attention to the environment around you. All of them share some form of recognizing that, that you've become distracted and that your attention has wandered and coming back. But then there are also practices that are in a category called deconstructive practices. And deconstructive practices are where you take that attentional stability that, that you've cultivated and use your focused and non-wandering mind to start to pay attention and, and engage in the type of exploration and inquiry that would lead to insights. So once you have a focused mind that's not going to wander, you could start looking into where is this uncomfortable sensation in my body coming from? What, what caused that to start arising? And you could start to ask questions about the nature of how you think about yourself. The stories, you could start to examine and question the stories that are routinely going through your head that you tell yourself. And so there's a whole area of insight meditation and, uh, and other practices that really work on breaking down our experience into smaller pieces and then working with the insights that, that come from doing that. There's a whole other family of practices that you could call the constructive practices. And the constructive practices include things like visualization practices and practices that harness the imagination. If you think about even watching a movie or reading a book, something that you know is imaginary and doesn't, doesn't really correspond to reality, those stories and the characters and the things that happen in, in those, they really affect your nervous system. They, they cause us to laugh and cry and have real things take place in our physiology. And likewise, the realm of imagination that exists within our mind is a, it's an entry point to the nervous system and to the mind. You can do things through imagination that, that you cannot do by just trying to directly tickle or settle your nervous system in some way. And so there are whole ranges of meditation practices that utilize the facility of imagination to affect psychological processes like, like cognitive reappraisal and cognitive restructuring, things where we actually can start to change the way we think about ourselves and the world around us in a way that affects our behavior and, and affects those who we interact with. So at a, at a high level, that's kind of a description of some of the different types of practices. And then within each one of those families, various spiritual traditions and healing traditions and secular traditions may have practices that fall into those categories and bring about the changes that those, that those 
categories lead to, if that makes sense. So a client could have like a negative narrative that they tell themselves, I'm broken, I'm not good enough. And with enough meditation practice, they could possibly change that narrative or dampen it kind of feeling. That's right. And that, that any number of meditation techniques might play into that. That at the beginning, it might be necessary to engage a meditation technique that gives someone a little bit more ability to just have some equanimity to be with unpleasant sensations in their body. And that that might need to be practiced for some period of time to accomplish a level of stability that would then allow someone to start looking into, oh, what might be the issues or the traumas that lead to situations that bring about those sensations. And, and that would be kind of in the deconstructive category. And then one could engage in practices of starting to tell a new story, starting to see oneself in a new way, starting to actually go in and interact with memories and parts of oneself having corrective experiences on the inner level that can actually lead to, to wholly different experiences of oneself. All of those are possibilities. And the thing that's great about working with a good meditation teacher is they're going to help you know where you are in the map of this work and when it makes sense to move from one practice or one technique to another. It's not really like like in exercise, you wouldn't just learn one exercise and rely on it your whole life. You'd end up over and under developing parts of your body based on doing that. It sounds like patience and kindness for yourself is, is a large part of this, especially if you're someone who's struggled with anxiety and had a tendency to push away negative emotions. And now you're all of a sudden asked to sit with it and sit with those negative emotions. So conjuring that loving kindness for yourself. And, and, and as you mentioned, having a guide to help you deconstruct and work through some of the things that you may have experienced in life is very, might be very important in achieving success through this meditation practice. I think those are some of the most important things. I, I think that the, what you just named underlies any meditation practice that you're going to do. And I think that in Western culture, we're particularly hard on ourselves in, in some strange driven way to get meditation right or to be doing it right in some way. And there's kind of a famous story of one of the early Mind Life Institute gatherings where I believe it was a conversation between the Dalai Lama and I believe Sharon Salzberg, but she was talking and describing to the Dalai Lama the kind of self-loathing and, and certain ways of, of beating ourselves up that is, are very, very common for Westerners. And the level at which she was speaking, the Dalai Lama really needed her to, to kind of dig into and explain because he just wasn't familiar in the meditative culture that he was coming from with that level of beating yourself up and giving yourself a hard time about the hard work of meditation. Very interesting. For those of us that are beginning meditators or perhaps have never meditated before and are interested in picking up the practice, is there a specific app that you recommend that might be easy to get started with? There is one particular app that I really, really love, which is called the Healthy Minds Program by the, it's produced by the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Center for Healthy Minds. And 
One of the things that's great about it is it's free. It's full of good content and it's free. But other reasons that I like it, it's, it's based in research. It's, it's offering meditations with, along with the explanations of, of why they work. And it really can teach you good meditation techniques uh, as, as well as the understanding of, of how and why they're working. And they don't make any claims about what the, the app can do that isn't already rooted in, in empirical data that they can prove. And they're studying further things through the app itself. They are, for example, one of the things that's great about the app is you can choose to do any of the meditations as a, a, a seated meditation or an active meditation, where if you're engaged in some activity that doesn't require your full attention, you can do these meditations while you're engaged in those activities. You can choose whether you want to have the voice of a man or the voice of a woman. There are, and you can choose other common things like how long the meditation lasts and things like that. But they're, for example, then studying what are the differences based on assessments with people who have been doing the active meditations versus people who have been doing the seated meditations. One of the things I generally love about the app is that it seems to be rooted in a concern for helping humans. And there are a lot of apps out there like Calm and Headspace and, and, yeah. and many, many others. And but, that's the reason why I asked. There's just so many to choose from. It's like consumer confusion. Which one do I go with? So yeah, we're hoping for a good recommendation from you to start with. <laughs> and I think that there's so much valuable content and experiences to be found for people in, in apps like headspace and calm mm -hmm. but it can't be denied that there are profit considerations going into the creation right. of, of apps like that and it's just i i've been a part of app development for meditation and the way that decisions get made is is just a little bit different than the way they might get made in a in a not-for-profit research foundation and so that's one of the reasons why i particularly like the the healthy minds app so that would be my recommendation for for getting started and I should mention, I, I have no affiliation with the, the Center for Healthy Minds. This is just, for my time and experience, the best-looking meditation app out there. Dave, will you do me a favor? Will you sum up for our listeners the five most important things of meditation? Whatever it is that you would absolutely recommend. Yeah, if you had to leave our listeners with some tips on how to get started and how to get over those initial humps, what, what does your expertise say? Sure. So I think the first one would be around the difficulty at the beginning and to anticipate it and embrace it and figure out a way of not shying away based on the fact that it's just, it's not going to feel good. And I would go so far as to say it's not going to even be fun for the first significant period of getting into it, but that, it, that it's really worth sticking it out through that period. So it does get better. It definitely gets better. It gets to the point where you actually look forward to it. I just, I don't want to, I don't want to try to put numbers on how long that might take because it's right. different for each person, yeah. but it, it does require. So that's the first one is the kind of don't give up. And the second one really would be about short moments repeated frequently and shorter, more frequent sessions are going to have a greater impact and, and be a better way to begin than trying to, to get into long, long periods of practice. 
I think the next one would be to work with a human who is well-trained and has worked with meditation practice, their, who has their own living practice where they're doing it on a regular basis. They're, they're still working with their mind and also know how to, how to guide you through those experiences. And I think maybe the, the last one that we just haven't touched upon is if you really get into it and start to see the benefits that meditation is having in your life, I really recommend at some point starting to explore meditation retreats. Okay. And that could be anything from a weekend intensive or a three-day thing up to multi-week retreats. They're the meditation tradition and what we know about the mind through meditation did not actually grow out of 5, 10, 15 minute sessions on a daily basis. It, it actually came from a deeper level of engagement with the practice that you just, you don't get in those shorter sessions. And I think part of the reason I don't talk about this is because the most important thing like, is that not giving up at the beginning and hearing about meditation retreats and things like that sounds really, really daunting and, and even yeah. less fun. But at a certain point to make these effortless, lasting changes to your baseline, longer periods of practice are, I think, indispensable. There are no meditation masters out there who just picked up headspace and stuck with it and rose to the level of a master. If there if there are, I'm not hearing about them. And I don't know why those stories wouldn't be being told in, in social media, for example. But the the Olympic level meditators have always come out of a tradition of of retreat. And I, I think that at a certain point it's really what's going to help your practice to to dedicate a longer period to doing that every once in a while. So it sounds like the more you meditate, the more comfortable you get with it, the more likely you will experience the benefits of meditation, not only during meditation, but hopefully those positive benefits will carry on and over into the rest of your life and help you deal with various aspects of your life that you might find difficult on a daily basis. I think that that's what the the 3000 years of meditation tradition have shown and I think it's what the the neuroscience and the brain imaging in the current day is showing that that there is a dose dependent relationship to meditation to some degree and when we put meditators who have done three-year retreats and spent long chunks of their life in a, an fMRI and measure what's going on, even in their baseline state when they're not meditating, it's significantly measurably different than very experienced meditators and, and novices. These, these, there's a, a spectrum that we can view of, of the benefits and the impact on the brain and the nervous system. And it does equate to how much you do it. Well, Dave, thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and expertise today. We really appreciate your insight and having you on our show. Listeners, please drop us a comment. What has your meditation experience been? What techniques do you tend to use? What works for you and what doesn't? We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we will see you next time. Once again, thank you for listening to our podcast. And those of you that have taken time to leave reviews and contact us through Instagram, thank you. You can see the show notes at stuckbrainpodcast.com. You can also visit us on Instagram at stuckbrainpodcast, and you can leave what topics you want to hear next.